In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. It is very good to be back for my sabbatical. Uh, so before we jump in, I just want to thank Father Martin for allowing me to take uh, the month of, month of August to recharge, and everyone else around here who took up a whole lot of extra tasks to cover my absence. Um, it was very good to, to be able to recharge, but it is very, very good to be back, and I'm excited to be here. Both Jesus and Moses issue very strong statements in the texts that we read this morning, and we'll get to those uh, eventually, but we're going to spend the bulk of our time instead on the entire letter from St. Paul to Philemon. I'm not sure you realize it, but you just essentially heard the entire book of Philemon. This tiny letter is more often an answer to a trivia question than seriously studied, but it contains both an expression of the power of the gospel for the human race, as well as the difficulty of its calling on our lives. I know, big claims, you might not have gotten all of that right away, but let me back up and start with a quick summary. Paul wrote this letter from prison to Philemon, a wealthy Gentile convert. Philemon had a slave, Onesimus, who ran away. Uh, Potentially, he took away some of Philemon's money with him when he ran away. Onesimus runs away, meets Paul, becomes a Christian, and then starts taking care of Paul while he's in prison. But Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon, we presume with this letter, asking him to forgive the slave of what could have been a capital punishment. Running away as a slave is a serious consequence in the Roman Empire, or contains a serious consequence. Paul offers generously to pay any debt that Onesimus has incurred, although he includes this passive-aggressive comment about how, you know, I'll pay this back, but you kind of owe me everything for having preached the gospel to you, so I'm just saying. It's the I'm just saying of the New Testament. And then Paul tells Philemon to receive Onesimus as a brother. And then he even hints at this possibility that he should free him from slavery, saying in verse 21 that, you know, I'm confident you'll do this and maybe even more than I'm asking. This hinted request, the emancipation of a slave, in which we see the power of the gospel for changing the order of this world, this request is a huge game changer. In the 19th century, abolitionists would argue for the end of slavery based on the equality of mankind, that we're all equal and that slavery is unjust. But that equality was not an assumption in the first century. To be a slave was to be essentially, not just functionally, a thing. That that your nature was changed. You are no longer another human. You are a subhuman. To be property, to be an object. On top of that, just like at the founding of our country in the first century of its existence, the economy was built on slavery. It required slaves to remain afloat. It was such an assumed part of Roman life that commentaries compare the institution of slavery in the Roman Empire to electricity or owning a car. So Paul is telling Philemon to do something that would not just be sort of culturally odd or this grand gesture of love, but something that would have been incredibly costly. Only those of great means could afford slaves, which should tell us just how much they were worth. So where does Paul get the chutzpah to suggest to Philemon to give up so much? It's because Onesimus, which was probably just a common slave name, it just means useful. Paul plays with that language a little bit. Onesimus, Mr. Useful, is not just a slave anymore. His faith in Christ, and we can assume his baptism, has made him a co-equal heir with Paul and with Philemon, and makes him useful now in a new way, useful for this joint project that Paul and Philemon were both committed to, the spreading of the good news of Jesus the Messiah, 
the work of preaching the gospel. In the introduction, Paul mentions to Philemon as well as that the church that meets in his house. And Paul goes beyond asking that Onesimus is treated as an equal in light of Paul's authority over Philemon. Remember, he said he's not going to use it, but he could use it if he wanted to. When Paul says, I'm going to send him, treat him as if he were me, the slave becoming the master, if you will. I know it's come up in sermons that I've preached in recent memory already, but I think it's important to restate that in Christ there is no other, there is no less than. There is a vertical component to redemption, an individual vertical component, that we are found to be in the Messiah, in Christ, and so our sins are forgiven and we have a new relationship with God, new access to God. But there is this horizontal component as well, that when you are in Christ, you are in a new relationship with everyone else also, especially with those who are in Christ. You are brothers and sisters. The divisions are torn down. I think of the end of Galatians 3, in which Paul talks about the work of Jesus tearing down these divisions between cultures, between, he says, Jews and Greeks, between the genders, there is no more male and female. But I think the greatest barrier, at least at that time, would have been this one set between slaves and free. This distinction existed at the very heart of the Roman Empire. And if we're having a hard time imagining what that's like, remember, we're not too far removed from this kind of a division. We can shamefully say that institution existed in so-called Christian countries for far too long. The three-fifths compromise comes to mind, a barbaric way to talk about treating a person as if they are 60% of a human. When Paul speaks of receiving Onesimus as a brother and potentially releasing the bonds of slavery, Paul is saying that the gospel casts humans, humanity, in an entirely new light, one in which every person is both valued in the eyes of God and no matter what separated us before, now identified as family. And the new status is personal. In verse 16, Paul says, no longer a bondservant, but more than a bondservant as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? Philemon, how much more is this a brother to you because he was your slave before, but now he's the same status as you. Now he is your brother, not your slave. This change wasn't just a matter of gaining some perspective for Philemon. And so we shift from what the gospel says about the value of other people to what the gospel then demands of us in response. We are called, as those who are in Christ, to live in light of the truth of the gospel. And the demands of the gospel are high. Onesimus' new status compelled Philemon to suffer significant personal cost in order to be faithful to the one who redeemed him. Paul opens this letter praising Philemon for his love towards Jesus and all the saints, a group to which Onesimus now belonged. That love was to be challenged because in the next verse, Paul says, I hope this sharing of your faith might become effective in good works, that this love and faith would find itself manifested in Philemon's actions. Make no mistake, this is not just a general theological letter. This is a persuasive letter. Let's be clear, to be a Christian means to follow Christ which means that we must be much more than people who assent to ideas, but people who are transformed into new behaviors. But once you pray the sinner's prayer, you're going to heaven, right? Good deeds are nice and all, and maybe even you should do nice things as evidence of that new life. But the only thing that really matters is you and your personal acceptance of Jesus, your intellectual assent that he rose from the dead and that he will come again, right? Once we say the creed, everything's fine. It's this tearing of the life of the mind apart from the rest of our lives, from our habits, from our behaviors, as if we are simply brains or even souls stuck in bodies that makes the Christian life 
nearly Gnostic. Now, Gnosticism is a word that sort of applies to any number of early movements within Christianity and outside of Christianity, we would say. But in the first few centuries, there were many who associated with a church who thought about the body as worthless at best and evil as at worst. We were souls trapped in bodies, and so some would say that it was important to have the right knowledge of learning those things that enlightened you and freed you from this earthly prison. It sounds bad to us, but with the mortality rate and illness, it was a very appealing idea. So some became hyper-focused on piety to tame their sinful flesh. Others indulged in whatever they wanted because this flesh wasn't important anyways. And while there's not a lot of hedonists in the church today who encourage us all to do whatever we want because we're stuck in these prisons of flesh, if Philemon were alive today, I think he might hear something that sinisterly borrows from those thoughts. He might have been told that, sure, he ought to be merciful to Onesimus, and sure, in a perfect world, Onesimus would be allowed to pursue his own vocation and calling without the shackles of slavery, but we just don't live in that world now, and God would never ask Philemon to make such a costly sacrifice. Would his individual action really make a difference? Is your individual action of great generosity really going to make a difference? So just don't spare yourself the expense. Just take it easy. Don't go overboard. Think about your family. Don't go out of your way to do this because it's not going to make a difference. And at the end of the day, the important part was done. Onesimus got saved. Let's celebrate and put him back to work. Because who cares if he continued to live as a second-class human? In God's eyes, he was precious. So don't worry about making those costly sacrifices. You don't hate Onesimus. We know that. This is just what it looks like to live in this part of the country, in this level of society. The important thing is that you love Jesus, and he loves Jesus, and at the end, everybody's going to heaven. Who cares what happens before then? And I'm afraid this just doesn't match with what Paul, Jesus, or Moses told us today. When Jesus warned his would-be disciples about following him, he talked about counting the cost. That before they invested in this new life, They should be like a king about to go to war or someone about to build a tower. You want to make sure you know what you're getting into. The cost would be taking up your cross, a phrase we use so often that we mistake its rhetorical usage for its actual meaning. Um, I actually heard someone making a passive, you know, quick comment about, that's the cross I have to bear in Battlestar Galactica. Now, some of you may laugh at me already, but that's all right. But in a fictional world in which there is no Jesus and there is no cross, but it's such a regular part of our language that cross to bear has taken on this rhetorical meaning rather than thinking about what it actually means. Think about it. Jesus is telling them to follow him, and it would mean giving up. Consign your fate to one of shame and forgetfulness. Dying on the cross meant you became one more marketing piece for the Roman Empire and their strength. It was a way of showing everybody else not to rebel, to take up your crosses and say, I'm going to die as a way to potentially even support Rome's war machine. We find that in the early church, there were plenty who were willing to do that very thing, to die at the hands of the Romans, or to take in the infectious sick that had been left out on the roads to die, risking everything they had, their own health, to love others. Jesus has these very awkward statements about hating your family, perhaps exactly like the early martyr Perpetua did when she died in the Colosseum, much to the shame of her father. Make sure you know what you are getting into because it is costly. In fact, Jesus says, you can't be my disciple unless you give up all your possessions. 
I didn't focus on that text this morning because I don't know how to explain it away. We all know the, the answers that hate your family and giving up your possessions is sort of metaphorical for not liking them as much as Jesus. And I guess that's what I have to do with the text. I don't know what else to do with it, but it certainly doesn't make for good preaching for me to go, Jesus said a really hard thing and maybe we don't have to do it. <laughs> that's, that's not very compelling. It certainly doesn't compel me into right action. And Moses makes it clear that following God is a matter of life and death. For us and for the Israelites, the death was not immediate upon first infraction. God is many things, but he's not petty. He's merciful. He's slow to anger. But they did face a death. But that death was a rotting decay that slowly ate away the people of Israel. Before they were exiled, centuries later, Not only had they disobeyed God's laws and continued to be unfaithful to him, they had disobeyed the laws of nature, sacrificing their own children to false gods. And I think when we allow ourselves to be caught up in the importance of the things we own, of our status, maybe to the detriment of the people around us, we're sacrificing our children, our communities, to the gods of success and consumerism and stability and that awful notion notion that we did a great job raising our kids if they amass more wealth than we did. That's success, right? I have money, and if my kids have more money, then I did a good job. Maybe. I think the text tells us this morning that there's a path that leads to life, and from the outside, that path may look like the one that leads to death. It looks remarkably difficult, counterintuitive. By freeing Onesimus, which we pray that Philemon did, he was setting any heir of his back a significant amount. Maybe his wealth was great enough that it wasn't too bad for him to lose one slave. His portfolio was secure. But if I were Philemon's other slaves, and I heard that running away and converting to Christianity granted you freedom, I might have felt a little movement of the spirit in my life as well. (laughs) He might have had a full-scale revival in his house, much to the chagrin of his accountant. If you have the capacity and the ability to make some kind of grand action like this, do so. But if you don't, do not despair. We have to all find ways to live out the sacrificial but abundant life that the gospel calls us to. It is abundant. Paul is writing from prison and was joyful, but it is difficult. I can't tell you what that is because I don't know how the Spirit is moving in your life, but I think we all need to look and see where are the ways that we have accepted our own version of of slavery. We've accepted our own version of, of stability, of saying, well, this is just how it works. Our imaginations have not looked at the kingdom of the world that is to come, but looked at how things are now and said, this will do. I can deal with this. Here's the thing. We're all going to fail, and that's why we confess each week. And not even just because we lied to a friend or because we were harsh with a loved one or because we refused to forgive, but also because we have been given the gift of new life, the Holy Spirit to guide us. And oftentimes we continue to live lives as if Onesimus were not our brother, or whatever version of that exists, as if there are the injustices that continue to exist around us just don't deserve to be addressed, as if some of the privileges that we enjoy have come harmlessly, as if our own comfort is worth the struggles of others, as if our stuff and our status matter more than the gospel. So every week we confess, but we hear God's faithful forgiveness. We are fed from his table for the strengthening of our souls and wills. We are sent out to be ambassadors of good news. By all means, don't let guilt or shame keep you in a place of self-pity. I know in my own life, if the devil can't keep me from being convicted of sin, 
The next best thing he can do is paralyze me with shame, thinking that doing anything about it is pointless or losing hope that any change will ever occur. Take whatever feeble steps you can to fight against a world that tells you your actions for good don't make enough of a difference, and so it just isn't worth trying. I pray that we all learn from Philemon, or at least what we hope Philemon learned from his letter from Paul, that we understand the magnitude and the never-stopping, always-and-forever love of God that he has bestowed upon us and the world through Jesus, that we might have opportunities to show the world exactly the difference this makes in how we live. I, I recently heard that Teresa of Calcutta, who was just recently canonized by the Catholic Church, she t- we had heard before about her dark night of the soul, about how she had spent much of her life not hearing from God. Well, it turns out she heard from Jesus to go start working with the poor in Calcutta and essentially didn't hear from him again until she died. And she said that if, if that meant, if that kind of despair and grief in her own life would benefit others, it was worth it. That's why, that's why we at the very least talk about the saints, because they are examples of lives that we can live, of people just like us who seem to follow Christ well. She wasn't perfect. No one is other than Christ. But we can look at her example and say, how much could I give up? Maybe a little bit more. I pray that we understand the radical value placed on every human life around us and the ways that that means we can give up our opportunities, our status, and perhaps even, dare I say it, the financial stability that we have for the sake of others. May we do it just like Philemon would have, not out of compulsion, but because the love of God has become effective in us and has changed us into loving other people just as much as he does. Amen.